that's what makes data-centric AI so interesting. It's, it's the fact that it's not a technique. It's, it's not a selection of techniques, in fact. It's, it's really just a shift in mentality. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Cheyenne Mahanti, CEO of Watchful. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Cheyenne, we are going to spend some time talking about a topic that we both enjoy chatting about. So this should be a fun one, data-centric AI in particular. But before we do, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. My name is Cheyenne. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Watchful, and we're building the platform for machine teaching, which is very much like a data-centric AI approach. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, I assume. But Prior to this, I built systems at Facebook. So I was a tech lead for a stream processing team that processed all the ads metrics data for all Facebook products. And I led some machine learning teams there as well. I'm also a guest scientist at Los Alamos National Labs where I've given talks ranging from automata theory to machine learning. So really pleased to be here. Nice. And yeah, before we get too far into the conversation, give us a quick overview of Watchful. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, we're, we're building what we call a machine teaching platform. Really, our goal is to build tools to help people largely automate the process of labeling data for machine learning. We kind of see that as the biggest bottleneck to getting machine learning into most organizations, most companies. And we're really trying to sort of close that gap and make it so that we can increase the number of machine teachers in the world, so to speak, or allow companies and organizations to solve their hardest problems using machine learning. When you mentioned that you've seen labeling the biggest gap, I want to ask you to elaborate on that. But at the same time, it's like, we've been talking about that for a long time. It shouldn't be that much of a surprise. And yet here we are with Andrewing and others having to name this challenge and talk about data-centric AI. You know, share a little bit about your experience with, you know, how labeling is actually done in organizations and the the kind of challenge that it represents. Yeah. So I would say that there are kind of like two main ways that labeling is done today. The first is by crowd. So that's where you get most of your managed vendors. That's where you used to have Mechanical Turk and now it's, you know, largely upended by the scales and appens of the world and so on. You can think of that shape of process as you have some data, you hand your data to an army of humans, and that army of humans labels it for you and hands it back. Mm-hmm. That works really well for tasks that require almost no context. So you want to do things like box stop signs or box pedestrians, or you want to say, get some sentiment on some tweets or something like that. That works really well. Yeah. The second primary way that labeling is done today is by bringing it in-house. So that's where you have Vendors that provide interfaces for managing your own army of humans, or that's kind of where we play, which is kind of like in the auto labeling space, where the goal is instead of having an army of humans to begin with, you could have the one or two experts who are really like the de facto domain sort of like knowledge owners of a particular task or particular set of problems and have them label the data. But instead of requiring 30 of them to spend a month in a room just labeling data, instead, ideally, they should only have to spend maybe four hours across two people and output the same quantity and the same quality of data, but several orders of magnitude faster. So that's kind of the space that we play. Now, 
we're seeing more of a shift to kind of like this ladder way of labeling. What we found is that a lot of the time, the things that you'd otherwise want to use crowd labeling for actually for the most part has been solved by way of these like foundation models. So now you've got OpenAI building things like GPT-3 and, and, and so on, where you can largely just reuse those models for a lot of like the common tasks that you'd otherwise be using an army of humans for. Now, obviously like in computer vision, there's just like a longer tail on a lot of those tasks. So that might not be the case, but especially in language, you can, for the most part these days, use a foundation model for a lot of these common tasks and not have to worry too much about army of human labeling. Where it gets really interesting is when you want to fine tune that foundation model on your task. And that then requires bringing that labeling task in house and really trying to formulate what exactly the data set needs to look like in order to get good performance out of your system. And that's where data-centric AI really can help. It strikes me that you're making a, a bit of a leap there that I'd love for you to elaborate on. Why is it that fine-tuning one of these foundation models requires you bringing the labeling in-house? I suspect it has something to do with this idea of context that you refer to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, what I'm not going to say is that every use case requires in-house labeling. Like there are a fair number of them that you could just farm out to as many people as you'd like because it requires very little context. But the moment it requires context that is specific to your organization, that's when you must bring it in-house. Or you have to find some way to produce that context externally from your organization, which frankly is like a philosophically hard problem. So that's where sort of like having, as I mentioned, you know, your one or two experts who really are like the de facto standard for how a particular problem is solved inside of your organization. If you could sit them down and have them label a very small amount of data and use that in the fine tuning process, that should yield a better system than if you were to try and capture that context or knowledge by way of like a set of instructions that you then hand to a bunch of people who've never done this task before. That's sort of the idea. But then you get into all sorts of interesting pitfalls where how much data is the right amount of data to get a good system? What parts of my data should I be focused on? How much time should I be spending? And, and what's more is that these experts, generally speaking, have other things to do than sit there and label data all day, right? <laughs> you know, doctors have doctor things to do, lawyers have lawyer things to do. So like, yeah, what you wanna do is make sure that you're using their time as efficiently as possible. And data-centric AI is really just like a framework for how to think about all these things. Mm -hmm. And when you think about data-centric AI in terms of a framework, like how do you parse out the, the pieces of it? So that's kind of like a hard question. <laughs> I can tell you the way I think about it, right? Which is they're kind of like, there's one big decision you have to make, which is, do I want big data or do I want small data? Again, a philosophically hard question to answer, but let me, let me try and like unpack this. Mm -hmm. Not all data is made equal when we're talking about machine learning training. A lot of the time when you're training on several millions of rows, several million data points, the vast majority of them are actually not moving the needle that much for a model. Yeah. So that begs the question, okay, if I could just filter out the vast majority of my data set. Especially so if you're starting with a pre-trained model that's already been trained on the general, right? Exactly. So you want to like narrow in on, on, on the specific, mm -hmm. right? But now the question is, okay, if I have a small data set, like the reason why you might want to train on a larger data set is because it includes more diversity in that data set, or there's more of a chance that it includes more diversity. There's obviously not that guarantee. It really depends on the distribution of your data, but there's a higher likelihood that a much larger sample 
will yield the right diverse sort of like properties that you'd want in your data set for your model to generalize well. On the other hand, if you artificially constrain the size of the data set, you have to be very careful about not introducing unintended bias or lack of diversity in the data, because again, you're artificially limiting it. So that's sort of like the first question you have to ask. Do you have the right makeup of data, the right makeup of, of techniques to be able to select just a small portion of the data set such that you still get the same properties of diversity that you're looking for for generalization of your model and you're not risking very much. On the other hand, if your data set or your task requires large amounts of diversity and, and you're not confident that you can subselect a tiny portion that is both needle moving and highly diverse, you might actually be better off training on a larger data set, but then you need ways to label that larger data set. So depending on which direction you go with that fork, you might end up with different techniques. I'll throw two examples out there like Active learning is a very good technique for the subselection and, and sort of like iteration on very small data sets, while something like weak supervision may be better at larger scale data labeling sort of tasks. So depending on which side of that equation you err on, you start going down a different path that then takes you through several different techniques that you can kind of like pull together like Lego blocks to yield a very good labeled data set. But the properties of that will actually depend on both your underlying data set, the type of model you're, you're trying to train, and you know, kind of the task at hand. Now, for completeness, I'd love to have you explain active learning and weak supervision. But I think before we do that, it's interesting and it strikes me as interesting and important to really emphasize that data-centric AI isn't a technique. Yes. It's like a theme or an idea, and that is an umbrella for a number of techniques that could help an organization be more data-centric, which I guess we haven't defined, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Andrew Ng calls it a movement, Yeah, which is pretty much what it is. I mean, like, frankly, a lot of these techniques, a lot of these, like, processes are not new. You know, like, they've been done for decades already at several companies. The reason why it's an interesting movement is because while a select few have been able to sort of intuit a lot of this motion just by nature of working with their data and working with their models, many haven't yet. And mm -hmm. it's a valuable process to, co to sort of like capture that knowledge and bring it to bear on the rest of the world by way of like a movement or a framework or a set of frameworks. So that's, I think, what makes data-centric AI so interesting. It's, it's the fact that it's not a technique. It's, it's not a selection of techniques, in fact. It's, it's really just like a shift in mentality, mm -hmm. which then means that like, data scientists don't necessarily have to learn brand new types of machine learning. You know, you, you don't have to learn a brand new skill set in order to apply this. You really just have to like shift your mentality a little bit. And that's what makes it so interesting. Mm -hmm. So explain active learning for us. Yeah. So active learning takes a lot of different shapes and forms. I think one of the most common shapes is sort of this idea of uncertainty sampling. So mechanically, what you do is you have, let's say, a large data set. And maybe some of it is really well labeled, other parts are not. What you do is you train a model on the parts that are already labeled, and then you inference against the parts that are not, and you measure how uncertain the model is on certain data points there. And the idea is that the parts that are most uncertain are the parts where a human should probably look at it and evaluate and adjust the label as necessary. So 
those are theoretically the data points that will move the needle the most for the model when it's retrained on them. And you kind of keep doing this until eventually the model is actually doing a pretty good job of predicting across the entire data set. That's sort of active learning. And again, it's, it's very, very good for these like small data problems, so to speak. And again, I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here because active learning can also be applied to very large data problems, but it's specifically very, very good at these small data problems where you have a very, very large set of data and you want to know what part of it is likely the most interesting for you to sort of spend your time looking at as a human. That's where active learning can be like uniquely valuable. On the other hand, weak supervision is a technique that's been gaining popularity in the last couple of years, where the idea is that perhaps you don't have any like highly trustworthy labels. So as an example, your data might be so huge or so varied or just require an immense amount of subject matter expertise that it's very difficult to get any amount of like direct supervision in any meaningful way. So what you might do is create labeling functions or these like weak learners or, or sources of weak supervision. And it's weak supervision because you can kind of think of these as like functions. A very simple function could be like a regex. Like if I see the word credit card somewhere in this text, then I know that this customer support ticket is very likely payment related, right? And then mm -hmm. you rinse and repeat with several other patterns. Like if I see bank or invoice, or if I see interest rate or, or whatever, then, then you know it has something to do with money. So in a way, these are kind of like heuristics. They're rules of thumb. They're no better than just saying like, you know, this thing is going to be noisy some percentage of the time. But note that you're not going row by row anymore. You're not saying, okay, I have to sit down and say yes or no, whether this is, you know, money related or not, or payment related or not, or whatever. You're saying, generally speaking, if I see these words in maybe approximately this order, then it is very likely payment related. So by doing this, you create a collection of these functions that you can then pass into a model that learns a label based on the presence or lack thereof of certain labeling functions and kind of like the combinations and, and the contradictions between them. And then it doesn't really matter how much data you're passing into the system. You know, you could be passing 2,000 rows, which would be easy, or 20,000 rows, or 200,000 rows, or 2 million rows. It doesn't really matter because the idea is that as long as you've sampled the data in a way where it's representative of the larger whole, then the functions you've created are still representative of the larger whole. You know, you can, you can apply them to a larger sample, as long as it's sampled in the same way, and get the same or predictable results. But you can imagine that like weak supervision as a side effect is very, very good at labeling for like the head of a distribution where there might be a lot of commonality. You know, you can create labeling functions that cover large quantities of data. But as you get further and further into the long tail, it becomes harder and harder. All of a sudden, you're creating labeling functions that cover maybe one row at a time. And that's like strictly no better than having hand labeled them you know it might even be worse because you have to like sit there and articulate a, a, a rule for it active learning on the other hand can help direct you to where that long tail might be or at least the parts of the long tail that are most needle moving for your model hmm. so yeah what strikes me as super interesting about weak supervision and tell me if this resonates in a lot of ways is kind of what you might do absent machine learning. Like you create a bunch of heuristics and we probably wouldn't have called it label something, but like you assign a tag or you categorize a transaction. And you know, so we know how to do that. 
But the problem is always that using a regex isn't going to be exact, or if you need to make it exact or account for kind of noise, then your system gets a whole lot more complex if you're trying to do it declaratively or imperatively. But machine learning helps with that because now all of these imputed labels are kind of probabilistic and we're assuming noise. And so the two, the heuristic and the machine learning kind of marry up well in this idea of, of weak supervision. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think like the theme of this conversation, I think, is things that have been done for decades, but haven't really had like labels put on them. <laughs> uh, like we're talking about expert systems and rule systems and, and so on. Like, yeah, there's a very classic motion in just like software engineering in general, where it's like, there's a very real business problem. The way you solve it first is you throw humans at it, right? You like have a bunch of people just like go and manually do the thing. Eventually you build simple software to solve that. The very first iteration of simple software will be things like rules, you know, but then very quickly you discover that your rules are brittle. And like, <laughs> as business logic changes and as your problem space changes and so on, it becomes very difficult to manage just large quantities of rules that may overlap or conflict in various ways. So there's this like nonlinear jump that you end up having to make from an expert system or rule system to machine learning. And that to me is one of the most interesting jumps that an organization can make. And that's sort of why weak supervision is so interesting. It's because as you rightfully pointed out, you can repurpose a lot of those rules as heuristics. It's a simple mentality shift which then yields an implementation change. But still, it's like, instead of talk, talking about them as rules, treat them as rules of thumb, right? Just assume that they're heuristic in nature. Assume that they're going to be noisy in some unknowable capacity and build robustness around your system that way. And then output some labeled data that you can then train a model on that will hopefully then learn an even more robust and generalized form of the relationship between the input and the output. And that's where you get some like really meaningful gains. And, and I think that gap is one of the most interesting to traverse because prior to a formalization like weak supervision, there was no linearization of the process going from like a rule system to machine learning. Like you would have to stop what you're doing and then like go hand your data to a crowd. And then like, you know, you have to kind of go all in on machine learning at the moment you, you do that. Here, there's like all of a sudden a nice incremental process that you can adhere to, which makes weak supervision a very interesting solution for lots of organizations that find themselves in that sort of like chasm between, I know I need to get to AI, but I still have a bunch of like legacy rule systems or expert systems that I don't want to like lose because they're providing value. How do I sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, I think the other part of my intuition, and, and tell me if this is your experience, is that in addition to the comment you just made about this gap, is that you know at some point with a rules-based system, we think of machine learning as more complex than kind of the traditional way of doing things in some ways, right? In other ways, no. But I guess I'm trying to get at like building a really robust rule-based system that can accommodate all of the corner cases and uncertainty in a, a noisy system like it's hard and it's like bespoke and I don't have any data to this, but my sense is that a lot of organizations have plowed a lot of time and money trying to handcraft this over and over again. And this idea of weak supervision provides a, a kind of an elegant framework for sidestepping needing to make the rules piece bulletproof 
and still getting to the ultimate outcome that you're trying to, to get to. Your intuition is absolutely correct. I mean, we've seen this time and time again, where an organization will attempt to build the world's best set of rules. It always turns out that it's not the world's best set of rules. Like, it's, it's <laughs> never good. It's maybe good enough. But like, yeah. we as humans are like notoriously bad at being able to articulate edge cases. Like, if we can articulate it very easily, it's no longer an edge case. You know, it's something that we can write a rule for. Right. But that's where highly generalizable, like deep learning models come into play. That's the whole reason why you would train a model out of a weak supervision like process, as opposed to just using the weak supervision process itself as the model. It's because of that added level of generalizability. You would train a larger, like deep learning model that has no concept of the rules or the heuristics that went into creating the labels. Mm. All it sees are the label and the input data. And ideally, then it learns a very rich relationship between the input and the projected output, such that it's not going to reverse engineer the rules because it has no concept of how many rules it took to create those labels. It's going to learn something else. And we hope that the thing it learns is actually more generalizable than the human input rules that went into that to begin with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something you just said struck me as interesting. And hindsight, I'm not sure if it's just kind of an obvious restatement of what we've been saying before or kind of nuanced and interesting, but how far can you, you know, have you seen folks go before introducing the machine learning model part beyond just kind of rules engine? Maybe that's a, a way to get at it. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, we actually have customers that are using Watchful as their model in production. Despite us telling them, hey, like, you should probably consider training a model and then using that model in production. Here are kind of like the properties to think about, right? It really depends on your use case. And this is sort of, my co-founder hates it when I say this, but it holds true. It's <laughs> like every data science problem, the answer is it depends. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter what the problem is. The answer is always it depends. So the answer here is it depends. So mm -hmm. if your data changes, frequently, you know, from, from time to time, or if you find that the variability that you've captured in the sample is not truly representative of the variability that you see in the total population of your data, or if you need, you know, sort of like an additional layer of nuance that you find very difficult to capture by way of heuristics, you know, where perhaps you actually do want something that's pre-trained that you're then fine tuning and so on. That's where having a deep learning model trained after the fact is so helpful. You know, it provides that additional level of granularity, that additional level of generalizability that would be notoriously difficult for a human to articulate in heuristics. Again, these are functions, right? These are functions that a human is writing in some capacity. Now, yeah. there's obviously a lot of like cleverness that you can add on top of this to make sure that these functions are expressive and, and very powerful and so on. But at some point you start almost converging on like model activations. A sufficiently complex function is just like almost no different from just like modeling a single activation in a model or something like that. So there's also a trade-off between explainability and power as we've seen in AI in general, but you know, obviously the same goes for we supervise systems. It's as your functions become more and more powerful, as they become more and more general, they also lose some degree of explainability. So 
again, the answer is always, it depends. <laughs> it depends. But here, especially it depends because in some use cases, you can get away with just creating a couple of heuristics that are really, really good at labeling your data. And all you really needed was that like additional layer of fuzziness, almost that, mm -hmm. that embrace of noise in these heuristics as opposed to rules, right? And, and that, that might be good enough. In other cases, you might definitely rely on having some like pre-trained quote unquote common sense in your model that is then used to sort of like boost overall like system performance. So it, it kind of depends on your use case. So we, we've had customers go the entire 10 miles that they had to go with just pure watchful We've had other customers train very sophisticated models after the fact and get really, really good results. So yeah, again, it depends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned previously this idea of machine teaching. Can you elaborate on that? Is that kind of an umbrella terminology that you're using for all of the things that we've discussed from active learning to weak supervision, or is it more or something different? Yeah. So machine teaching was actually a term coined by Microsoft, Microsoft Research specifically. And so the best way to frame it relative to data-centric AI is that data-centric AI is very much a movement. Machine teaching is sort of a mentality coupled with like a set of strategies or proposed strategies. Mm -hmm. So it becomes slightly more concrete. Machine teaching is a part of the data-centric AI movement. It's just one layer of granularity deeper. So the idea behind machine teaching is kind of simple. It's that classical machine learning research has largely focused on building bigger and better machine learning models, right? It's so like focusing on the student, if you want to call it that. And the idea is that you want to create a student that requires very little data to learn how to do the thing. The problem is that is in large part very difficult to predict. Machine learning invention, true like machine learning architecture sort of like innovation happens in almost like stepwise motions. So it's very difficult to predict when the next innovation is, is going to happen. On the other hand, the whole idea of machine teaching is if you could flip the coin and instead of focusing so much on the student, focus more on the teacher and make it so that the person training this model or teaching it how to do the thing is several orders of magnitude more effective at doing that. What does that world look like? You know, where it doesn't matter what student you're training. You know, it could be a very sophisticated deep learning model or it could be something more classical. It shouldn't really matter because the same tool sets should be applicable in both cases where focusing a lot on making the teacher much more effective. So techniques like weak supervision and active learning go into this as well as things like transfer learning and, and even like simulated data approaches and, you know, synthetic data rather, like all of these things kind of belong under that umbrella where it's a very strong focus on taking what's in the head of an expert and applying that programmatically as much as possible to data, which is then used to train models and not requiring, you know, 40 doctors to sit in a room for a month labeling data. That's sort of the idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate what I think of as the broadening of the term machine teaching. Yeah. I know very well the folks at Banzai, yeah. which was a company that was acquired by Microsoft, and they were kind of the spark of this 
machine teaching idea applied to yep. reinforcement learning and industrial AI. We collaborated on an industrial AI ebook and they were a longtime client of mine. And it's great to see that term resurface here in the context of data and data-centric AI. Yeah, we think it's criminally underused. Absolutely. We, we stumbled upon the terminology in one of their research papers out of the Microsoft Research Lab after they got acquired. And it just really resonated with us. Like that is exactly what we're building. That's exactly what needs to be built for AI to make its way into most organizations. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're really excited about all the work that's happening in this space. And it's becoming more like the concept of machine teaching is becoming more and more popular. So I'm glad to see it's slow, but vital resurgence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this fitting into the overall model development workflow when an organization, you know, has a problem, you know, they think machine learning is the solution to this, you know, do they start with rules? Do they start with, do they need to think totally differently about the, the way that they approach building models today? Yeah. As I mentioned before, it's, it's more of like a mentality shift. So mm -hmm. it's less about like what technique they start with. It's more about matching the data to the architecture. Here's what I mean by that especially these days, like machine learning coding for the most part is like kind of a solved problem. I'm going to hand wave like a lot here. So bear with me. <laughs> so like with the various frameworks that exist, there's Keras, there's, you know, there's Torch and, and so on. Like there's several just like very nice commoditized ways to build almost any neural architecture you can imagine. And even more than that, they're like very nice architectures that you can just get off the shelf that will work for most problems. So a lot of the time, organizations don't really have to innovate on machine learning code itself. So for all intents and purposes, from like a data-centric AI perspective, you can kind of hold the code static and you can iterate on the data to get better yield. And that's where the shift in mentality comes. Yes, I could have like an army of humans on standby and just give them data. And like, if the data I get back is not good, I tweak the rules or tweak the description just slightly to get, you know, perhaps better yield and so on. But it's very much like stepwise motion. And each time you do that, you might have a lag of like two weeks before you get your data back. It's not a very efficient process. So data-centric AI is about not only focusing very carefully on what data and how you're getting it labeled and that sort of thing. But it's also about the user experience or at least the experience around acquiring that labeled data. How do I shorten the period of time between, hey, I need data to, okay, I've got good data. And that process could you know, utilize things like weak supervision, depending on what your data looks like and that sort of thing. It could use things like active learning. It could use things like synthetic data. It really depends on what you have at your disposal both from like an infrastructure and like machine learning ops perspective, as well as from like a data distribution perspective. Like, does your data lend itself to active learning particularly well? Does it lend itself to weak supervision particularly well? Does it lend itself perhaps better to synthetic data? Mm -hmm. So really, this is just about like talking about the data specifically as opposed to the model, because good data can be used to train almost any model. And again, lots of hand-waving here, depending on the model architecture, you might need more data, you might need less data, you know, it depends on so many variables. But the idea is that for the most part, the hard thing about machine learning in the enterprise today is no longer the actual modeling component. And it's actually on the data. And it's just about thinking holistically about that now. 
And do you find that that's the case, hand-waving notwithstanding, kind of across the the most valuable of an organization's problems? You know, I've talked about this idea of model-driven enterprise and like it's the anti-commoditization of machine learning. Like, yeah, you can, you know, use machine learning in your organization and get some advantage if it's built into all the stuff that you use, but it's not really your models solving your problems for your data. That's where the real value is going to be. Is that in line with what you're saying or? 100%. Yeah. Okay. It's absolutely in line. I don't know that this is a hot take anymore, but I firmly believe that in the next 10 years, every company will have some sort of AI functionality internally. It's just an inevitability. And the question to ask is like, why hasn't that happened yet? Mm -hmm. You know, like modeling techniques have, again, become largely commoditized already. Like, why haven't we been able to bring AI into the fold in a meaningful way across all enterprises? So that's sort of where our conviction is around the data piece. It's that the hard part is not actually on the model architecture or the code aspect. If you think about AI, it's just like code plus data. It's exactly as you said. It's like my hardest problems are around like, this one part of the business where I've got like one subject matter expert who knows how to perform this particular task. No one else knows how to perform it except for this person. Yeah. I want to build a model to augment that person, but very quickly I end up in a catch 22 where I would need that person to be in the process of labeling that data for that model, but they're already a critical bottleneck to my business. So Right. I can't have them sit in a room for like a month labeling data. I really do need them to be productive on top of labeling data. And that it just becomes very, very hard to build a system that will actually help there. So that's why a lot of the time, if you do see enterprises kind of like trying AI, they're usually trying it for use cases that are not the most needle moving. That's why like the typical hello world for machine learning is like a Twitter sentiment analysis bot. Yeah, It's because it's like the most accessible data. And it's not that the architecture is particularly simple. A lot of the time, these sentiment analysis bots, like they use off the shelf architectures that are fine. You know, a lot of it is just around like the mechanics of acquiring the data, cleaning it, like going through the process of training the model, iterating on it and so on. It's just availability of data. So our conviction is that if we can make it dead simple for your expert to label your data in your environment as quickly as humanly possible without requiring them to like take time away from the things that they're already a bottleneck day to day for, then we can price organizations into actually using AI for solving their hardest problems. And that's kind of like the laser focus we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe an insight out of this question and your response is that model is kind of an overloaded term and you can use an off-the-shelf model architecture, off-the-shelf code, but the thing that makes, after you apply your kind of proprietary data to those things, you have a proprietary high-value model at the coming out of the process that may be based on a commodity architecture. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Generally speaking, again, like, I'm very excited about these massive foundation models that are being built. I still think that we need more of these foundation models across other data modalities and other tasks. So I'm certainly not pushing against the idea of these foundation models that use lots of generic label data to produce generally available good insight. The hard part is marrying that 
two specific use cases. And a lot of the time you can use a GPT-3 for like very interesting use cases, but in order to match that with enterprise value, you have to marry it to data or a use case that is unique to that enterprise most of the time. And that's where like that whole data centric movement becomes very interesting because then you can marry the foundation model with very specific, very curated data that you can then combine to fine tune a model that again, becomes proprietary. It could be based on this like massive architecture that you kind of like repurpose from somewhere else. But yeah. the piece that makes it yours is the fact that it was trained on your data for your task by your people. Yeah. What do organizations need to be successful in making this mindset shift? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think like the big thing is just like, this is kind of, again, going to be hand waving, but just like being open to it. That's like uh -huh. the biggest hurdle. It's like a lot of the time folks get entrenched in the way things have been done for a very long time. And it's very difficult to break out of it. One of the things that we find like very common is the idea that hand-labeled data is ground truth. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of like an interesting idea where like, it's just not the case in the real world. A lot of the time people have subjectivity that comes to play or they have biases that manifest in, in their labeled data and try as hard as you might, it's impossible to get a 100% accurate and fair data set labeled by an army of humans. So that's like one of the biggest hurdles that we've had to face in like communicating what we do to the rest of the market. It's getting people to acknowledge that the way they've gone about doing things so far has been leveraging words that they don't actually mean. Yeah, I was just gonna to amplify that. Like, do you go as far as, you know, trying to convince people to stop using the term ground truth when Yes. Yeah, it's not absolutely ground truth. It's just their labeled data. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, like we try and educate them on like... <laughs> like, hey, this actually means something and it's not what you're thinking. Yeah, words matter. You know, like, <laughs> like you can't go around saying that your data is ground truth when it's like clearly riddled with bias and like incorrect labels and assumptions. Like right. we've seen this time and time again. So first we educate them that like, look, hand labels themselves are noisy in some unknowable capacity. They are, by nature, weak. Perhaps not as weak as functions, but they are still weak in some way. And now the question is, how weak, right? How much can we trust the hand labels that you already have? Like, how do we leverage them in a more robust system? How do we combine them with other sources of signal to then boost or reduce the signal introduced overall? those become very interesting questions. And mm -hmm. part of our like overall conviction is that as we move towards a more mature MLOps workflow overall, data-centric AI notwithstanding, right? If we're talking about just like the maturity of machine learning as a whole from the enterprise, explainable AI has been a very important thing for several years now. Yeah. But the interesting thing to us is that a lot of the techniques there are all around explaining your model and like why your model is making certain decisions mm -hmm. and, and how that could play out. But the reason why your model is making a biased decision <laughs> is because it was trained on biased data, right? Right. Potentially. I mean, there are exceptions to that. Naturally. You know, I, I saw a good one where someone was using Distilbert to predict sentiment on certain phrases. So it was like, if this movie was produced in India, that would have very high sentiment. 
-hmm. Then there was another where it was like, this movie was produced in Germany. And that had a very low sentiment. Hmm. And the reason why that happened, there, there's several reasons, obviously. The Stilbert was trained on like internet data. There's obviously imbalance in, in that data because it's probably overfitting on like this pre-trained notion of like World War II and you know, several mentions of Germany that are like not very favorable. But even more interestingly, the model architecture is such that like on the sentiment analysis side, there's no notion of neutrality. It's either positive or negative. Mm. So the model architecture actually ended up biasing the entire outcome because there's like those are inherently neutral statements, but it was forced to either make a positive or negative assumption. Uh, that's such a clear example of this thing that we've been fighting about on Twitter for years, like that <laughs> bias is only in the data and not in the models. No, it's everywhere. <laughs> It's everywhere. You can't escape it. It's literally everywhere. And, and But you just have to be smart about like where you're limiting the possible sources of bias. Human-generated bias, both in the way of data as well as in the way of model architectures. There's bias in the way labels or predictions are used you know, downstream. There's so many different ways that you could sort of like capture bias unintentionally mm -hmm. in a system. But as part of that, like we should be building systems to find where this bias might be being introduced as part of our explainability initiatives was the point you're getting at yeah exactly all the way up and all the way down the stack so as part of this like because we touch the data a lot our notion is that you should be able to explain that data yeah you, know, you should be able to explain the data that goes into your models otherwise how are you going to reason about it so the point i'm trying to make is that you just have to be like open to a lot of these things you have to be willing to shift your mentality and willing to shift again as a side effect your techniques in producing some of these models. And then naturally, it also helps if you've taken the first couple of steps in your machine learning journey. If you know what status quo looks like, if you know why this is different, if you know how this plays into the rest of your MLOps stack, that's helpful, but not required. I think the biggest requirement is very much just like a willingness to have your mind changed. Mm -hmm. Couple questions. One is you talked about the noisiness of hand-labeled data and to some degree, we've recognized that and sophisticated organizations have employed a number of strategies to try to mitigate that quorum among labelers and yep. managing labeler quality and all this kind of stuff is data-centric AI or some of the things that we've been talking about under that banner, weak supervision, et cetera. Is that a substitute for all that? Do you need kind of these advanced labeling strategies less if you're employing some of the things that we've been talking about? It's a very good question. Our argument is yes. However, that's not necessarily the argument that's shared across the board. But it depends. Yeah, it depends. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> so here's the deal. Like, you've got things like kappa values, right? So like measuring how good of a labeler someone is and, and, and that sort of thing. You've got interannotator disagreement as a side effect of that. You've got, um, as you mentioned, quorum between hand labelers. You've got all these different things that play in. Mm-hmm. I think that there are ways to do that correctly. I just haven't seen them yet. So for instance, quorum amongst hand labelers. Like, let's say you have like seven out of 10 people say that this thing is toxic and three people say that it's not toxic. Like it, it's a tweet or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like my conviction is that every single one of those people was correct in some capacity. Mm -hmm. there, there's some amount of subjectivity. Right? Like what, what exactly is toxicity? Toxicity is a thing that is very difficult to actually capture the nuance of, right. especially if you're trying to write up a description. 
So you have to acknowledge that there's like cascading systems that go into these labels. Like you have to have the world's most perfect rules that describe how to label a thing in order to get inherent consistency in the labels that come out the other end. And mm-hmm. we're human. We're not going to write the world's most perfect descriptions. It's just not going to be possible. We're not going to write the world's most perfect criteria for labeling. It's just not possible. Uh, so this kind of speaks to, you know, we talked about bias in data and how there's also bias in models. Here we're pointing specific to there's also kind of in, inherent bias in labeling systems and labeling tools and the way you're labeling instructions. Exactly. I mean, it's it's all over the place, right? Like bias can be introduced in a multitude of places. So you have to be like very cognizant about that. And I, I think that like trying to articulate whether someone is a good or bad labeler is fundamentally the wrong approach. Hmm. The reason for this is because you might be trying to categorize them overall as a bad labeler but they might be very, very good at labeling certain parts of the data because of their context, because of their expertise, mm-hmm. but very bad at labeling other parts of the data. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more accurate to indicate whether the expertise they're bringing to the table in particular segments of the data is actually valuable or not. So that's sort of like point number one. And point number two is I believe that these labels should capture the rich context behind what, you know, sort of the one or zero output is. So for instance, in in the earlier case, if seven out of 10 people said this thing is toxic, I'd want to know that. I'd want my model to acknowledge the nuance that went into this so that it can actually learn a richer relationship between the input space and the output value. So that is actually very, very important. And again, that's why I'm saying that I think there are ways that you could build a system that does a lot of this stuff, but I haven't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. And so like we take kind of like just a different approach to it. Our system is not a hand labeling system. You know, we have hand labeling as part of our process, but A, we acknowledge that there's no such thing as ground truth. And B, all of our labels are inherently probabilistic by nature. So you can have probabilities that are 100% or 0%. So you can have extreme confidence on either side, but you can also have confidences in the middle. You can have that 70% likelihood probability or something else, right? But that allows for 101 degrees of freedom in your, in your label space, which then hopefully yields a model that will learn a richer relationship between the input and the output. So it's a long way of saying, yeah, I think you could build better hand labeling systems. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. You referred to data centric AI and the kind of stuff we're talking about as part of the MLOps stack. Yeah, historically, in, in a lot of ways, there's been kind of a separation between all of the data stuff, the data stack, and even data ops and data prep and all this stuff and kind of ML ops. You, you're kind of, it, it, does data-centric AI kind of bring those together? Yeah, it does. Again, the, the whole concept here is that in today's world, as it relates to AI, you can broadly consider the code to be like held static. And again, AI is sort of like code plus data. And if you're holding the code static, then the thing you're iterating on is data, which means that by nature, if you want that to go back through an MLOps system, it has to be connected in some way. So the argument here is data should be a part of the stack in some meaningful way, perhaps not the entire like process of procuring the data and so on. Like, you know, maybe some of that is a little bit more bespoke or a little less framework, but 
really the idea is that AI is code plus data, and we have very, very robust ways of managing that code due to decades of innovation on the software engineering side. And we haven't seen quite the same thing in an ML context on the data side. And that's, I think, the part that data-centric AI really aims to help sort of like push. It's the idea that data really should be a part of the MLOps stack. Yeah. And do you find that these ideas apply equally well across media type modality, text, audio, video? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Obviously, the only real place where it starts breaking down is at the moment you start leaving like supervised machine learning. Mm-hmm. Because then it, you might not need data, right? Which is totally reasonable. Right. But broadly speaking, when we're talking about machine learning in the enterprise, we are generally talking about some sort of supervised system in some capacity. And yeah, we, we have seen that this applies like roughly the same across every modality, across every task. Now, devil's always in the details, right? Like mm-hmm. managing things like 3D point cloud data is very different to managing things like just single dimensional text or something like that. Like the way you go about interfacing with this data and the way you go about applying your subject matter expertise to it will differ like quite a lot yeah. from modality to modality. Now, like a whole purpose to be for, for my company is finding the common threads across these modalities and across these, these tasks such that you can reuse the same skill set and the same workflow no matter what data you're bringing to the table and no matter what task you're bringing to the table. Not all things will be similar. Not all things will be the same, but a lot of them will, at least the core will. And that's kind of like where we focus almost all of our effort. It's, it's finding that common ground. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Cheyenne, it's been wonderful having you on the show and chatting about your take on data-centric AI. Lots of great stuff in here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. This is a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.